one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to a very special episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 325. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Been looking forward to this interview for a very long time, Sawyer. Can't wait. Me too. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Sawyer, I'm not I'm not sure, but it looked to me like when you said very special, it was in all caps. So uh, I'm looking forward to it, too. If I had a script, it would be. So uh, let's not leave the listeners hanging. Mark, can you please introduce the guest which you brought for us here on Talking Space today? Well, our guest is someone that I met on April 29th at STS-134's first uh, planned launch that got scrubbed, as everyone knows. And I got to spend some time talking with Dr. Tara Rutley. And Dr. Rutley is the Associate Program Scientist for the International Space Station at NASA's Johnson Space Center. And I got to back up for briefly just a second. On the 27th or 28th at the Media Center, media, at the News Center, they, they put out a sign-up list for interviews. And I, I saw what was up available for the couple of days that uh, we had pre-launch and I went and talked to Gene I said Gene what do you think we got some astronauts and and a uh, a program scientist and he said well sign up for all of them if the time works out and I I looked at at Dr. Rutley's sign up sheet and you know here the advantage is that most of the press was off on another event the room was pretty much empty and they had just put the sheet down and the sign up sheet was was empty and I put my name on the top line and I and then I started to look into a little bit of, of what our guest does with, with NASA. And the more I learned, the more I was hopeful that nobody else would sign up and that I would get the whole hour, hour and a half time and not and not be stuck with ten or fifteen minutes. So that's a long story to to bring me to the point where when we did start our, our short fifteen minute interview that was on a previous show, that um, I I kind of wound it up with saying, you know, Dr. Rutley, I sure hope that we can talk to you more. I was hoping to talk longer, and she was kind enough to say, well, sure, that would be nice. And so tonight, to Talking Space, I'd like to welcome Dr. Chara Rutley. Chara, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for that introduction. That's very touching. It, it means a lot. You know, when they put that sign-up sheet out there, yeah, honestly, that was my first time even in doing any press out for any shuttle launches, so I'm like... There's a sign-up sheet. Gee, what if it doesn't get filled? So while you, while you were wondering if you'd get a chance to, to get on the list, I was wondering if there would be anybody on the list. So I'm <laughs> I'm just happy to be able to talk to you guys again for a little bit longer period of time. I'm curious, just just on the on the personal note, how did the rest of the day go since uh, since I started out being the first member of the press that talked to you that day? My goodness, oh, it was a fascinating day, and honestly, um. I was a little nerve-wracked kind of going into all of those interviews because that was my first, like, big day of just nonstop talking. But you you came in and you were so friendly. It was a friendly conversation. Honestly, it just kind of set the tone for the rest of my day, and um, it, it made every other interview just very friendly and personable. So uh, everything after that was fantastic. And I believe we talked – it was launch day, right? Yes, it so, was. So I had just gotten – all, through all of my interviews when I heard about the launch scrub and it was pretty fascinating being in the newsroom when that tone, that energy turned from launch day to <gasps> scrub, you know, all of a sudden the the tone of the media changed and everybody wanted to know what an AP heater was and, and I, I was just I was just floored just watching, you know, the energy change. So so it was a pretty pretty neat day I have to say. It was really great to be there. 
I'm glad you made the trip. Um, we've got a lot of questions, and of course, we it's exciting. I, I I know I communicated this when we first talked, but it's exciting to find out a little bit about the science of what's happening on the International Space Station. So uh, here's a here's a pretty rough question to start with. Not a not a difficult one to answer, but uh, it kind of indicates uh, how little I know as to what goes on there. But I read about categories of physical sciences and human life sciences and Earth observation. What are some examples of experiments in that or other categories? I'm kind of a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, sure. I, and, you know, the one I like to talk about the most, and I, I hope I don't overexpose it, but I can't help myself because I think it's one that everyone can relate to. One of my favorites is uh, the vaccine development work that's going on. And, and I had no idea either. You know, I've been in the ISS program science office for two years now, and um, I was an engineer at NASA before that and also a scientist. And um, I really didn't, I had no idea about the vaccine development work that's going on in space station. And it stems from um, some just some basic NASA research in space, both on space station and early shuttle missions that, you know, they're always looking at, you know, bacteria changes. It's a closed environment, right? So what are the little microbes going to do? Viruses, bacteria, fungi. Um, so what NASA found out pretty early on in the, in the station program is that bacteria become more aggressive in, in space. Something about the microgravity environment, most bacteria become more virulent. They, they grow more faster and they attack more. And um, as a result of that, um, when the national lab effort came online now, a commercial company called Astrogenetics leveraged those results and have now sent up their own experiments um, on, on particularly Salmonella and, and MRSA, which is the, um, the staff that's resistant to antibiotics and it runs rampant in the hospitals. And they sent their own samples up targeting genes that make, you know, which genes are involved in making these these microbes, these bacteria more aggressive and, and identified those genes and now have taken that, um, have started, um, they've developed a potential vaccine and have started just kind of chasing down the FDA process on getting that vaccine somehow through um, clinical trials into market. And that's one of my favorite things because everybody knows that, you know, food poisoning, which is the, the bacteria that causes food poisoning, is salmonella. Nobody likes that. If you could take a vaccine against it, you probably would. And so um, salmonella is a major killer, you know, um, worldwide still. MRSA, even worse. So any, so something that I like, I had no idea until I got involved in the program was, you know, that's, that is something that people can relate to. That's, that's work that's being done on space station. They probably don't have a clue that's going on. And they may, it may still take several years before you get something like this. So from the early stages to, a potential vaccine that may or may not come out of this. Um, you know, it takes a while before the people actually see, the American public actually see results. And so, um, but it's still something that people can relate to. So that's one of my favorite things, you know, just beyond that. I mean, anything you can think of that has any kind of effect from gravity. I mean, everything. As we're scientists and engineers and just growing up in school, we're always taught the basics of biology, the basic laws of physics. And we develop our, our science fair projects around that and our master species around it and, you know, and then our postdoctorate work around mostly gravity, the vector of gravity. But every possible discipline you can think of here on, on the ground is, is affected by gravity in different ways. There's the physical sciences, the boiling changes in space. They range from fluid physics, you know, fluids tend to crawl container walls in space, the capillary flow type of thing dominates. Um, in the human body, there, there's pretty much a change in every system in the human body, ranging from the inner ear to the kidney changes to the bone and muscle, which are the most obvious, the cardiovascular changes, even neurological changes that happen um, in space. So um, anything from little microbes to fluids to material design, um, to the human body, you know, there's so many changes that happen, and 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 it, that's why our list. If you if you check on all the experiments that have been done on space station, that's why there have been over 1,100 investigations performed to date, just over its 20 year, uh, just over its 10 years, excuse me, of assembly. So even in the the first 10 years of space station, as we were building it, we still performed over 1,100 experiments in several different disciplines. So we're still getting a handle on those. 
Um, the thing about space station experiments is, is that, you know, this laboratory on, on orbit is, there's nothing like it on the planet because it's, it's so interdisciplinary, you know, take even, even just disregarding the fact that it's in microgravity and you've taken that one variable, that controlled variable away. There's no, there's no multidisciplinary laboratory here on earth as, as there is on the space station. So we've basically taken the best from every ground-based laboratory facility and sent it up there and, 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 and told these scientists, you know, here's, here's where some of the concerns are. What can you do for us? What can you develop that can benefit you, Earth, and, and NASA? So it's the only one of its kind. And, and, you know, it takes a little while. When you're doing research on the ground, you do things over and over and over again. And one laboratory, one laboratory has one goal, and that's to design X or to cure X. And it takes several years just for one experiment. And here we are sending up there so many experiments at a time just in its first 10 years trying to, you know, show results and see what we can get. And just the fact that you take gravity away, you do learn a lot more quickly what, what you, the, the path you want to take with your research as you go on. But still, it takes a while. If you're a scientist, we all know it takes a while to, to do your research, get your data, and, and to communicate that in a way that's meaningful to the scientific community, but also to the people on Earth who are, are questioning, you know, what are we getting from this and what, what are we getting from our dollars? So the, the, the toughest thing, that's, the toughest part of my job is to run into the average person on an airplane or even a congressman at, on a, you know, a visit to NASA. It's what, what do we get for our dollars? And it's a really difficult thing to communicate, um, you know, when you're talking about research that, that takes a little time and takes research. It's research. You do it again and again and again before you get to where you need to go, before you get your answers. So, um, so it's a big laboratory and it's a big job with, with lots of different things going on at lots of different times, too. I'm curious, at the beginning of, of what you've been talking about, you mentioned vaccine development work. And this is something I've been curious about. Uh, this may be an operations-type question that, that's, uh, you know, part of the program you're not that much involved with. But are there concerns with the space station being such a closed environment to having, having things, uh, bugs, viruses, uh, germs that nice. get started? Is that a, is that a problem? Sure. It's, it's not a problem as much as it is a, a, and I hate to use the word concern, um, you know, it's something we watch for, something they watch for up there because um, I don't know how many of you guys know, I heard the rumors about Mir. I guess there was one type of bacteria. And, and with that closed environment on orbit for so long, um, these things can mutate. I, I think I read somewhere several times actually that there was a type of bacteria that kind of, mutated on Mir that ended up eating their PVC piping, and that, that was something they hadn't seen here on Earth before. So for our space station, it's not that it's a completely sterile environment, but it is a closed-loop environment. And so what they try to do is to, to test the area regularly, and they swab, the, they swab with sample containers and things to at least, at least classify or characterize the types of microbes that are in the environment on a regular basis so that things aren't out of control. And they may look at certain areas like where they exercise or, or where they may eat more frequently than others, but they do have a regular routine of sampling. And um, and I'm not sure how they do cleaning, but I know they at least sample it and send that information down to the um, scientists on the ground, um, not for research, but for medical, med-ops purposes, what we call it, med-ops. So medical operations purposes. Is there any experiment that you've seen on the International Space Station that has yielded results that nobody had expected? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, let's see. I would say the microbes, the, the vaccine development work was a big one that no one saw coming. Um, there was another, yeah, actually there was another really good one that was, again, along the biomedical lines. Um, you know, for, for years, even, you know, starting, I think, in the early 70s, um, the, the doctors, physicians on the ground have found a way to treat certain cancers by injecting these little micro balloons full of anti-tumor agents right straight to the cancer tumor, which is a direct way, it's, it, you know, it's, it's easier, it's quicker, it's less, less likely to spread systematically, uh, systemically and, you know, get straight to the point of the tumor. But they never had the, the right size micro balloons and the right 
um, design of these micro balloons because I guess there are some pretty strict details to the, to the design of these things to make them most effective. And so a group of scientists um, here on the ground decided to send some materials up to space station to see, for the heck of it, what, what would happen if they tried to make these micro balloons up on space station in a microgravity environment where the, the fluid tension, the surface tension is a little bit different of fluid and, and, and oil and, and, and um, fatty components and materials just act differently. So they sent up these materials and, and, and made these micro balloons on orbit. And what they found was something they didn't know could be made, actually. Um, they found these micro balloons that were the most ideal design for delivery of these cancer tumors. And, and these, these micro balloons were preserved and brought back to Earth. The scientists studied their properties and actually created a new device that had never been created before that was able to replicate what these um, balloons, these micro-balloons were, um, were able to replicate what these micro-balloons were made like in, in space. So now they've created this machine that can make these perfect micro-balloons and it showed increased, you know, effectiveness in treatment of, of rat tumors here on the ground. And they've gotten, they've received patent on this device, and they're actually pursuing funding for clinical trials for use of um, these micro balloons in treating cancer patients on the ground through MD Anderson here in Houston. So it, it was advancing on technology that was already in the field in the cancer treatment industry, but just wasn't optimized, and no one actually knew it could be optimized in a way that actually resulted from um, what was done on space station. Um, I have a, a bit of a question here, too. Uh, first off, just a comment. Um, if uh, anything comes out of uh, ISS research um, for a, a vaccine for MRSA, wow, uh, that would be just a, a stunning a stunning development. I have a relative, my sister, who's a, who is a medical professional, and unfortunately she did fall victim to a, a rather vicious MRSA infection. Uh -huh. So if... if um, if a vaccine right. for MRSA could be developed, that would just be wow. I mean, that that would right. definitely be be a be a, a ton, you know, you know, just a just a, a showstopper in plain English. Um, what is the criteria that your office looks for for potential experiments to fly on ISS? I mean, how do you go about judging which experiments deserve merit and actually get uh, uh, manifested to go up? Oh, really good question. So our office is actually kind of a center point for an influx of all the potential investigations that have already been selected by the different NASA projects that are in programs that are out there. So, for example, the Human Research Program would put out a NASA research announcement saying we're looking for an experiment to fly on space station that meets XYZ criteria. They receive their proposals, they review them, peer review them, and select which ones they want to fund. Now, this is the NASA path. They then would um, send them to our office, and we um, receive those as well as others from the physical sciences, the biological sciences, the educational um, part. Uh, we even receive we received the national lab office um, selected experiments too. So all these different projects and programs around NASA will send their selected investigations to our office for a particular increment, for example, or a particular period on space station. And then what our office does for NASA is to review the scientific merit of each one of those. And we consider things like, um, you know, is not only the scientific merit, but in addition to that, the, the, the on-orbit resources in a way that will tell us, you know, if we look at a particular experiment and we say, ah, well, this one's a great one, great scientific value, and it needs to fly immediately because in the future there may not be a chance because of XYZ resources. So we take all of those experiments that come in and we prioritize them. That's what our office does. We prioritize them based on science at the foremost. And, um, and they, get, they get a high, medium, and lower priority, or, and then that's how they end up um, on orbit. Anyone that the projects have, and the programs have sent to our office will, has, as a choice will always make it up on station if that's, what they, if that's what these programs and projects have selected. Our office only prioritizes them based on the science, so we might... So uh, something like a material sciences might actually be competing with a life sciences experiment based on the scientific merit that we see. 
You mentioned, you know, which gets a high, you know, uh, medium or low priority. How would how would how would you go about judging that? I'm just I'm just curious. Starting with the science, every experiment that comes into our office um, actually receives um, a scientific summary along with it, mm-hmm. and um, related publications as well. They also receive a ranking from the project office that sent it in. So in that project office sent in a list of their chosen experiments. They rank them first, Mm -hmm. then send them to us. Our office sits down and has a meeting with uh, their office to understand the value and the merit of each science and and hear the cases of all of them. And so then then we we meld them all together uh, based on those criteria. Sometimes it's tougher than others, and it can be a real challenge for our office. I've sat in on a few cases where, you know, we, we have to make some tough decisions, but it, it seems to always work out in, in uh, everyone's favor, and, and we do the best we can based on what we're given and what we know. I have a feeling some, some of those meetings, there's some, you know, fist pounding on tables and all that, but eventually things get kind of sort of ironed out just as, as they do everywhere else. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you talked a little bit in the beginning about uh, what spaceflight does to the human body. Have have you folks developed any type of countermeasures as a result of some of the experiments that have gone on thus far? And if so, how can some of these countermeasures be turned over to uh, uh, to the uh, to uh, I guess the, to doctors and so on for dealing with uh, issues back uh, here on Earth? Uh, that's a really good question. And and the countermeasures that are used on orbit right now, um, and this applies to most all of the all of the systemic changes that we see in the human body, most of what's used on space station is actually a result of the earlier Skylab or um, or our earlier shuttle missions and, and what we've learned biomedically from those missions. But so while our, our crew on orbit right now are using countermeasures based on that data, there are ongoing experiments that are, that are narrowing in on different issues that still don't have countermeasures uh, to date. Uh, for example, there's an experiment right now called integrated cardiovascular that is questioning why the heart atrophies in space. And the heart's a muscle, just like all the other muscles in the human body in space. If, if you don't use it, it starts to weaken because you're in the microgravity environment. You don't have forces to work on against. Well, the heart, with the heart, you know, in the cardiovascular system, the cardiovascular system immediately starts losing fluid because you urinate it all out, and it's just the way the body adapts to space. And because you're you're pumping less fluid, the heart will start to get smaller. So this is one investigation that looks at how long it takes for the heart to atrophy, what are the potential causes of atrophy of the heart, and then when those results come in, those are types of countermeasures that may be developed to maybe mitigate that 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 um, issue. It's fine for when you're in space. Your heart's doing what it needs to do when it's in space. The issue becomes when you return back to Earth and you're right back in a, a gravity environment where your heart needs to be tossed and pump harder again where your fluid's loading again. So mm-hmm. there are experiments like that, and especially with regard to uh, the human body, you know, when you're a researcher and you're trying to get to some answers, you need a high sample size. And so you design your experiment around a high number of subjects. And with um, with us, with USOS crew members, only maybe there are only maybe two to three crew members that you can get per increment to participate in a study. It might take several years, and it will take several years before you come to the end of one human research experiment to be able to to start to analyze any kind of data and come to any kind of definite conclusion about a kind of countermeasure that might be needed. Um, some of the other investigations that are going on right now are just looking at changes in the astronaut's diet on orbit, kind of messing around with the protein uh, to carbohydrate ratios and seeing how that might affect bone and muscle changes that we see in space. Um, there are some investigations looking at the, the blood flow to the brain, um, looking at changes that happen in the eye, changes to the inner ear, and all there's lots. So I think about just in every system you can think about in the human body happens, but it, it's going to take lots of several years before we before we might come to an answer. There was a study uh, that was released, I think, l- last fall. Um, it was a study that uh, looked at, uh, did some sampling of muscles, some actual tissue sampling of muscles of astronauts who had been on orbit, and they were looking at, for space station, looking at the f- efficacy of the current exercise hardware that's being used on orbit. 
And by looking at the tissue changes of the muscle, that particular investigator found that what was up there right now wasn't doing, at the time, I should say, wasn't doing a very good job at mitigating muscle loss. So, um, so, but that was with earlier space station hardware, and these days we have improved resistive exercise means on orbit with the advanced resistive exercise device. So it will be interesting to see what studies come out of that. One, one in particular study called SPRINT is, should be taking place within the next few months to kick off, and it's another way to um, evaluate the current sphere countermeasures that are on space station. I can already see um, how this research could benefit uh, us here on Earth. I mean, you're looking at, at dealing with the heart, which again is, is a muscle, and if it does have some, atro- you know, if it does atro- atrophy in a microgravity environment, um, you know, it could lead to um, some uh, applications here with heart disease and, and so on. So this is this is really exciting stuff. Sure, and it is, um, and in fact, you know, um, there's a there's a European space agency experiment called CARD, and that they they actually have, um, in conjunction with their astronaut population as test subjects, they have a set of ground subjects of, of those with heart disease that they're comparing to. So they they really are getting at the point of the Earth benefits directly. For NASA, the you know, the, it's, an, it's an interesting thing because for NASA, our research goals for space station right now, as mandated by um, the NASA Authorization Act and the Vision for Space Exploration, our goals are really exploration-driven. But with the national lab effort that was mandated by Congress in 2005, that is the effort that is solely designated with an objective of benefiting those on Earth. And you see that through the participation of the National Institutes of Health and the, the USDA and the Department of Defense and, and those agencies who have direct missions to benefit those of us here on Earth just on a regular basis. They see a benefit and a value in using the space station as a platform, a unique laboratory to, to gain information that will come back and benefit those on Earth. So for NASA, we're exploration-driven, and when we can receive benefits that are and we certainly do try to make every experiment applicable to um, to benefit those on Earth. Most every experiment that you see coming in when they're talking about their research objectives and the gains, there's a little, there's a few sentences on how NASA gains, and there's a few sentences on how there are Earth benefits as well. But what you see direct for the funding that's directly spent on benefiting those on Earth would be through the national lab effort, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's imp- that 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 vaccine development is actually part of the national lab effort. Wow. Uh, one uh, just a one more question here, um, and this is more of a more of a personal nature. What exactly got you started on this career arc? Was it just simply a long time interest in in spaceflight, or was it simply the merger of of your scientific and uh, and other interests? Oh, that's a good question. It's a uh, funny because you know when I was in third grade, I think I wanted to be an archaeologist first or a paleontologist. I mean, who didn't love dinosaurs and dirt back then? And and I I asked around on that, and someone was wise enough to say, oh, well, you know, you get to dig in the dirt, but you have to write for these things called grants, and you have to make money, and, you know, no, it's hard to get, you know, these things. and, and, And I was like, okay, well, maybe instead I'll be an astronaut, you know? So it was one of those things like, Space is beautiful, and, and, and at that age, you, you want to be an astronaut. And back then, something like that it's, it was a dream, and it was a, it's an important thing for kids to have dreams these days because that, that actually kept me on the road to where I was going. Cause from then on, I wanted to be an astronaut, and so it kept me out of the principal's office, and it kept me getting you know A's and B's you know, all through middle school. And, and in high school, we went, to, um, we went to tour Johnson Space Center because I grew up in Louisiana, so we took a bus trip um, over to Houston. And um, while we were there, I asked an astronaut, um, you know, what does it take to become an astronaut? And I know these days that they get asked that a lot. And, um, but it was, it was something that no one had ever told me before. He said, study hard make good grades, and I'm like, yeah, 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 I hear that a lot, but the last thing he said was, just have fun doing whatever it takes to get there, just just have fun getting there, because not everybody gets to be an astronaut, so when he said, just have fun getting there, it started asking, it started making me wonder, what, what do I think is fun, what's exciting, and when I was in high school, um, when we got to dissect a cat in biology, uh, <laughs> I knew that it was biology that I was interested in, so... <laughs> 
Thanks for being a cat fascinated me. I'm a cat lover, but geez, that was pretty cool, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, but still, everyone kept telling me, if you want to go to work for NASA and you want to be an astronaut, you need to be an engineer. you got to love math. But I, I did pursue my biology undergraduate degree, and when I was doing that, I was working on some projects that I needed help from mechanical engineering students to get my ideas across and to get my designs across. And they knew how to work the machinery and build what I needed built. And it got me thinking about getting my master's in mechanical engineering. And that's what I did. I started to realize the interdisciplinary nature that's, that's highly critical um, in, in just getting my ideas across. And it's fascinating, too. You get to work as a team among all these different disciplines. You learn so much. It's never-ending. And then uh, once I completed my master's degree, I got I got lucky to be hired on at NASA. Just I think all the stars were aligned, and it was just meant to be. And um, but there was one last thing, uh, which was my PhD that I really wanted, but I couldn't pass up the job of a lifetime. So I worked at NASA for a year, and then I talked my management into letting me obtain my PhD at the same time. So uh, I did it, and it it took me about four and a half years to get to my PhD while I was an engineer at mm-hmm. NASA which is something I never thought I wanted to be, but it was amazing fun. Um, and I completed my PhD in neuroscience in, in 2007 while I was a flight hardware engineer building um, medical equipment and research equipment for the space station. And in um, about 2009, I just was, I was looking for a change. I had done flight hardware for about eight years and was ready to use my PhD. And this position opened up in the program science office and, I've just been amazed in Florida and how lucky I've been since then because it's it's been super cool. <laughs> <laughs> I could just imagine. <laughs> hey, Mar- Fascinating. <laughs> I don't want to hog the mi- microphone all all this much. I still have a few more question, m- questions, though. Mark, you had a couple of things. Well, this is important, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of the entire team. Uh, Tara, when I ask you if you could get out that blank piece of paper and put talking space down when you go to continue research with uh, proteins and carbohydrates. Friday night pizza night on the ISS, we deliver. <laughs> you know, if you deliver, I'll be right there with you. <laughs> uh, that sounds wonderful. I will not forget it, trust me. <laughs> um, I'd say seriously, but uh, I guess it is seriously. I've heard the statement assembly complete uh, regarding the International Space Station. Does that really mean more time to science? Is it uh, is it really shifting gears to to crew on board the ISS for the amount of time it takes to maintain the structure? Yeah, you know, I, I simply complete that that phrase came around I think about last year or or just when I had entered the program science office and um, and at the time I was pondering what that meant. Did that mean all the modules were done, all the re- all the major research racks were done? Um, the USOS segments complete, and what I gained, what I gathered from it all, what I could tell from the inside was definitely that it was, it meant we had enough research facilities. Most of the major research racks are there. Most of the research facilities are there, at least for the USOS um, segment. So um, that means more crew time has been ramped up that are that are designated just for for research, for utilization, what we call utilization of space station. And now we've got a full staff, a crew on orbit. They um, they average uh, several more hours nowadays than they did in the assembly period, and space station has become number one um, the number one place, or I should say, um, research has become the number one focus of space station, um, and that's what it was intended to do. So yes, a lot of the focus has now shifted from the fascinating aspects of making all these modules fit that have never fit before, even on the ground. We've never tested them, and all the amazing feats associated with all the shuttle flights and spacewalks and proton rocket launches. And now we're shifting to fascinating science. And look what this laboratory can offer. We're open for business. There's there's plenty of, of opportunity that's come in either through the national lab effort or through the NASA effort or through our international partners' own efforts as well. And so that's what Assembly Complete means um, to us is it's time to focus on what we call utilization, and that includes the... Um, uses of space station, not only for research, but also for technology technology development and demonstration as well. Now, when it comes to some of the experiments on board the station, I know that are there are probably some of them that are either time-sensitive or temperature-sensitive or have some variable of it that has, that has to be, you know, exactly specific. So how exactly do you maintain, you know, like a steady environment for some of these experiments on board the station so that you don't get false data? <laughs> 
Ah, right. So a lot of the scientists are smart about the resources that are available on station. We have a few freezers up there. Um, most of the scientists, if they're a cell scientist and they're sending up microbes or even plants, tissues, they are smart enough to provide in their hardware design a way to fix those samples, either with some, with some kind of fixative um, that can hold these samples and kind of suspend them the way they are so that if the sample needs to be returned to the ground, it can be returned to the ground that way. Other samples, such as blood and urine and saliva, those get frozen and returned uh, via cold bag in the return vehicle. So it's, it's, it's some of it's smart experiment design. Others, our, our use of resources. And another way, if you're designing experiments, if you're a material scientist or a combustion scientist, a physical scientist, most of those uh, research experiments involve use of um, imagery. You, you know, it's either through photos or videos of these changes that happen to these materials or these flames on orbit. And it can either be sent down real time or it can just be set to a recorder and and just play, and just recorded for however many hours, and then that can be downlinked later. So there are lots of different smart ways. If if you're a researcher, you protect your samples in different ways. You understand the resources that are available to you on orbit. You try to work around those so that you're as self-sufficient as possible in preserving your samples, and you get smart about how you do that. Right now, um, we do have <laughs> some live samples of, of spiders um, on the space station right now, and they actually, you know, they're alive. There are two of them. They're moving around, weaving a web, eating their Drosophila. And the, the, the sample return there will not be the spiders, but what they're getting back is, is imagery of the spiders and their daily activity and how they're spinning their webs. So that's an example of um, using near real-time images. I believe they get one, they get like a set of imagery every hour. I think it's downlinked to the, to the, uh, the researchers on the ground. Okay. Um, I had one other uh, question with reference to uh, to, uh, to Nemo. You were talking uh -huh. about doing doing some really really fun stuff, and uh, Mark, you kind of sort of touched on on this a little bit during the uh, the first discussion that you had. Um, just to initiate the some of the listeners, Nemo meaning NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations, so essentially an underwater laboratory. Can you touch a little bit on that experience? Talk a little about it. Um, you know, also as an analog, perhaps for the International Space Station. Uh, have you talked to astronauts that have been on a Nemo mission and also on an ISS mission, and sort of you know compared notes and figured out you know indeed is is this a good analog for for the ISS? And do you have any favorite moments? Because you were part of uh, the Nemo Six crew. What uh, do you have any favorite moments that occurred during that uh, that particular stay on Nemo? Oh man, yeah, that, that's loaded. Let's see. Um, so 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 Nemo Nemo is a NASA pro, uh, project. And it actually takes advantage of an underwater habitat that's about 60 feet or so underwater off the coast of Florida. That habitat's owned by NOAA. And on a regular basis, it's, it's, have, it's used by marine biologists who want to go down there and do long-duration studies of the coral reefs that are protected uh, in the sanctuary over there. So, so it's an ongoing um, seasonal project that's run by NOAA, and then NASA takes advantage of that uh, habitat once or twice a year to send their astronauts and scientists or engineers um, on a mission that, you know, like you said, is an analog for long-duration space flight. I believe the longest mission, and I could be wrong, for NEMO has so far maybe been 14 days, and I think they were looking at going longer, maybe 16. Mine was a 10-day mission, and it was pretty early on because now I think they're up to NEMO 14 or 15 um, and 6 back in 2004. So, um, so we were just kind of getting a feel for the habitat and the environment, and um, and I was an engineer, and so ours was the first engineering mission. Um, previously, it had been scientific. Um, normally, when you go down on Nemo, scientists are interested in in looking at that analog environment. Uh, they look at things like uh, behavioral changes, markers in saliva that may represent the stress stress of the environment. And uh, they found a lot of, um, well, they've compared a lot of data from the NEMO missions to what they've seen in previous spaceflight missions before and, and can see a lot of correlation between, between the two, just physiologically, um, minus the gravity vector, of course, because there's, there's gravity vector um, on the Aquarius habitat, which is the name of the habitat that's underwater. 
But um, for us, uh, the purpose of my mission was to bring down a series of experimental hardware that could be a lower test readiness level, you could say, of something that we may see um, evolve to use on space stations. So it was basically taking down some hardware, some experiments, and trying them out down um, with the crew of, of three astronauts and myself and just seeing as proxy scientists, as proxy engineers, how, how they re- how they worked, you know, from a human factors thing in the stressful environment of a 10-day um, underwater analog mission. So, um, so when you're when you're in that habitat, which is the Aquarius habitat, you you know you you're, you've you've got this high risk of decompression sickness if you if you don't obey the rules. So your your tissues are saturated with nitrogen. You're you're called saturation diving. And you're, you're not allowed to exceed 40 feet of, of depth of water. If you go above that, then you risk life or, or limb, you should say. And so safety is the first first and foremost thing on your mind. Um, and then, um, so once you're down there, you know, it's, it's, it's 10 days of sticking to a stressful time, time scale. And, a, and you're, everything's planned out like it is on Space Station. We use the same, we use the same software that was, is used on orbit to, to, uh, to schedule the crew. We went through, you know, for we went through TV interviews like the crew does on orbit. We went through the experimental timelines. We did simulated EVAs where we might spend several hours outside of the habitat scuba diving, um, and all of this uh, collecting data, uh, downloading the data, and sending it to uh, mission control every day. Keeping journals um, and and keeping hygiene, and uh, you know, just in, in trying in keeping thinking about the family and talking to each other. Um, it was a great it was a great mission, and my crew were uh, John Harrington, who was a, a seasoned astronaut. It was uh, Doug Wheelock, who was I believe Commander Expedition Twenty Five. I believe he he just returned a, a, a last year, and um, Nicholas Patrick, who's now a two time shuttle flyer and. Both Nick and Doug at the time were rookies. They had never flown before. So John was our, our chief, and, and it was really cool to have him around because he would say, oh, this is a lot like space, you know, because when you're down there, <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're down at those depths, you are increased in pressure just a little bit. So your head always feels a little cloggy, and then once you're floating around in the water a lot, you come inside, you kind of feel like you're still bobbing around. And, you know, so he, he would say, oh, yeah, stuffy head, feeling like you're bobbing, you know, it's a lot like space flight or oh, the stress of this is a lot like space flight. And the one thing I, you know, I may have been the only girl, but the one thing is with that increased pressure under there, you know, we all inside the habitat, it affects your vocal cords such that your voices are higher. So I may have been the only girl, but I sure didn't sound like the only girl. So that was a benefit (laughs) that I saw being down there. (laughs) But they were a great group of guys. You know, I have talked to to Nick, um, Nick Patrick, who's, since been on two shuttle missions, he went back as another on another Nemo mission. I believe it was Nemo thirteen, and he went back as a commander that time. And so he had some interesting things to to say. It was you know just different being as commander and have already having been on a shuttle flight. You know he was able to draw the corollary between the two and definitely sees a value in the Nemo mission. And I haven't had a, t- a chance to catch up with Doug Wheelock, who has come back from his six month stay on space station and getting his thoughts on that versus Nemo, but when, when he's done making his rounds of, of appearances and debriefs, I'm going to try to catch him for lunch to get, to, to get a feel <laughs> on what his thoughts were on that too. Cause, uh, you know, it's been a while, but I miss those guys and they were a very good group. And then um, I think the most fascinating thing um, that, you know, you asked the question, what was the most fascinating thing about being on that mission? You know, the experiments were fantastic. The diving was great. And I like scuba diving, but I think the most fascinating thing about being on that mission was just, being a part of that team because mm-hmm. they were, I mean, you hear about the astronauts and we work with them, but you know, nobody really gets a really, very few people get a really good understanding of what it's like to be in their, their highly high performing, stressful, high expectation environment. And with cameras in your face at all times, you know, yeah, really. so I got a taste of that for 10 days and it was it, it, when I left, it made me, an improved engineer, an improved designer of hardware. I, I very, very um, tedious, uh, very, very close-minded on um, focusing on details, getting it right the first time, thinking about the end user, how the end user might react to my hardware, even down to the names of the hardware. It just it was really good for me to get that hands-on experience experience as a hardware designer because it 
I took off. Once I got back to my job, it was very, very uh, clear to me some of the improvements I could make in my just my daily job. Uh, Tara, I, I read some information that uh, recently, I guess it was actually coming up on two years ago, you spoke at the ninth National McNair Conference at Indiana State University. And I read about the McNair uh, Graduate Opportunity Program, and it, it mentioned that uh, during your keynote speech at that event that uh, you talked about your education, your career path, and uh, a statement about being elaborate on it's like uh, something that was pretty important to the group oh, you were yeah. speaking with certainly yeah the McNair scholars group so so from 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 the way I grew up I grew up with a single mom and you know there were two of us uh, children and my mom was trying to raise us doing the best she could um, so so you know I, w- I would say times were challenged and I was actually no one had gone to college before me I just knew I had a dream, and I knew I, I needed to go to college is what I knew. So um, so, so I, I, I left home. I, you know, I graduated. I went to college, um, started out. You know, I just knew I wanted to get away from Louisiana, so I just went anywhere I could. <laughs> started out at Michigan State University, and, you know, financially, I had to work several jobs at one time, one of which was an overnight, um, overnight position. And after my third semester there, my, my grades were not – they were, I felt like a failure. I wasn't, I think I had gone down to like a 2.3 GPA. So it was, it was shocking to me. And it was a, it was a, it was a, a kick in the pants. And it wasn't that I hadn't tried because I tried. And, and you start to think, oh my gosh, is this what failure feels like? Well, so I took, I took the semester off, but I didn't quit. Because what I did was I went to work at space camp as a space camp counselor. <laughs> so keeping the dream alive. Um, I, I saved up a little more money to try again, and this time I tried at Colorado State University, and uh, was having a good time there, um, and affording it, and doing well. And I had applied to the Space Life Sciences program at Kennedy Space Center at the time. You know, there was a lot of NASA engineering internships, a lot of co-ops, but they were all focused at engineering, and there were very little for science. And so, at the time, this was one of the few. I applied to that, and I got rejected. And I thought, good grief, you know. I don't know if I'm, you know, you start to wonder if you're cut out for this kind of thing, you know, and maybe there's something here that, you know, rejection, right? So I was feeling kind of low, and I was walking around the campus at Colorado State, and I looked up, and I see this door with a space shuttle on it and a picture of Ron McNair, and um, I go, oh, what is that? I knew who that was. I went inside and I'm like, what is this McNair program? What are you guys talking about here? And so the woman behind the desk explained to me that it was a place, it was a, it was a program designed to take in undergraduate students who were either first generation college, so meaning no one's gone to college in their family before them and or low income or minority students. And just it was a program where they would take you in. You could do research. They would fund you to do research in a laboratory on campus. They would also have workshops to help you prepare for things like the GRE and prepare for graduate school. Their goal was to get you from undergrad to grad and pursue a PhD as far as you could potentially go. Um, and I had no idea this program existed, so I had applied, thinking I'd get rejected from that. And uh, and you know, I was mumbling to my husband something about I'm not good enough. Blah blah blah. But they took me. They they took me in, and so I was real excited. And from and I did my research with them that summer, and then I reapplied to the Space Life Sciences program the following summer and got accepted. And what I realized was, you know, everyone should know this that, geez, just because things don't seem to go your way the first time around, you just keep hanging in there, keep plugging along. And I hate for it to sound cliche. And every time I speak. Now at the McNair Scholars um, programs, when they at places like Indiana State University, I usually get called two or three times a year to go and speak to other students like I was. The thing is, I I say, you know, even astronauts have to apply. Some have applied as many as 17 times before they've gotten in. Some have had failure in grades and have brought things brought, brought their grades back up and still got into the core. You know, people like me who start from very little and have a few hardships along the way. All it takes is one success, and things do happen for a reason, and you go down that path you're intended to go down, but you just can't close your mind on any potential opportunity. 
the key is keep keep your mind open and take a different opportunity. If, if one goes away, what's next? And so if you keep your mind on that, all it takes then is one success. One success will, will keep you positive enough to look forward to another success. And then, then it's just success after success and a little bit of luck. But it's, it's not just luck. It's hard, it's hard work in realizing opportunity. And it's those three things, luck, hard, hard work, and opportunity combined that can get you to where your, your dream is now a goal and your goal is, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting here and do you know how many, you know how many days I've dreamed of this? And, you know, my family, all the times my family thought I was crazy for going through all this education and, and, and all of this crazy stuff. But um, to this day, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that, that I, I'm working at a place that I love so much and, and getting to be involved in the science that I, that I can. And so any chance that I get it, uh, to speak to the McNair students, I definitely go out there because I can see myself in them as they're sitting out there in the crowd. And, um, and, and there's nothing special about me that's no different than anyone else out there who's, who's struggling. And so uh, it's just following what you love. And not, I really never believed anybody who said I couldn't do it. I, it wasn't that I was defiant. I was just like, what? What do you mean I can't do that because I'm a girl? I'd never heard of such a thing. Anyway, keep going. You know, and, and so I just never, you just try, try not to take too many things personally. And just realize when opportunity is available to you, and just move with it, even if it's something you never thought you'd want to do. Never thought I wanted to be an engineer at NASA. Always thought it was going to be science, but I was engineering for the first eight years, and now I'm doing science. So it's and and I think it was the perfect path. So everyone should just you're struggling a little bit, stick with it because I don't think things are failure. I think they're just rerouting. I don't think there's any such thing as failure. It's just rerouting. That's great words for anybody of any age, young, old, and everywhere in between. Amen. <laughs> yeah, great advice. Makes me think there's hope for me yet. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, yeah, that's right. You just keep doing what you love. It's about doing what you love, and uh, it'll all work out. You're you're all doing what you love. So. When you were down in Nemo, you probably experienced you know a little bit of isolation like they experience on the space station, although maybe not as severe. So. How have experiments on board the station and possibly even your own experience with Nemo uh, taken a look at the psychological effects on humans, you know, compared to just, you know, physical experiments? Uh, yes, so there are a few psychological experiments happening on station, and um, there's a lot to be gained from the journals that the crew are keeping on orbit. We did the same thing on Nemo as we kept crew journals. I think for us, um, for Nemo, Certainly the isolation effect, I didn't feel it so strongly after just being there for 10 days. To us, it was still so new. I heard that uh, so new and fascinating, so we never really felt isolated. But I've, I've heard that on station it takes anywhere from two months and on, you know, up to two months for crew to, to actually get to the point where they are trained up, learning curve over, and now things start to get a little bit more regular <laughs> every day. And I wonder, I start to wonder if maybe that's when some of the isolation starts to, to, to sit in. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, just in addition to the biological markers that can be kept, you can, you can just talk to the crew. And different crew respond differently. Um, I think having the big window now, the cupola out there to look out of, you can see it in the pictures when the crew are looking out longingly at the earth. You wonder what they're thinking are they thinking, wow, you know, you hear, wow, you know, that's that's where all my friends and family are, but that's where the whole entire planet is. And they think about borders and they think about war and they think about peace and they think about, fragil you know, fragile fragility. And then, uh, yeah, maybe they're thinking that they're they're a little isolated. I, I guess I, I imagine I would feel that way, too, having been on orbit for so long. With Nemo, we didn't feel that so strongly, but it, but we still kept journals, and I can imagine um, where that could potentially come from. Dr. Rutley, I have one more question for you here. Um, this is well, STS-135, the shuttle Atlantis, is sitting right now at uh, LC-39A, uh, essentially for the last time. Uh, could you, do you have any uh, insight into what is being carried by Atlantis uh, on this final uh, uh logistics mission to the ISS, and sure. does the um, the loss of the shuttle's <laughs> upmass um, present a problem right now to the um, ISS science office, and can ATV, HTV progress, and perhaps the commercial entities, you know, 
kind of sort of pick up the slack for uh, for getting experiments to the ISS? Sure. So right now, you know, it's an interesting thing because for a long time, no one was sure if 135 was actually going to happen, right? Because we kept hearing about it, but there was never a funding put in place. And so when, when we heard that it was reality, we put the call out for research, and um, it, it was it was fascinating to see the scientists have to so quickly turn around the dreams that they had been planning for a long time, but maybe never knew they would have to get these experiments on orbit so quickly for 135. And um, not only the, the scientists, but the hardware designers, too. So, you know, a lot of what 135 is going to be sending up spares and consumables and just stocking up the space station for not just research consumables and spares, but the systems as well. But there are a few um, pretty neat experiments that are going up as well. And I know one that was turned around pretty quickly was the BRICS Energy Experiment that comes from Kennedy Space Center. And this is just um, biological research in canisters looking at uh, the plant symbiosis um, with uh, nitrogen-fixing bacteria in seedlings that can be grown in a microgravity environment. You know, plants need nitrogen to grow. And, and we're looking at lots of different ways to potentially grow plants in space that don't involve a lot of soil, don't involve a lot of maintenance, don't involve a lot of water, all these resources. One potential uh, thing to think about would be to use, uh, use nitrogen-fixing bacteria that can form a mutualistic symbiosis with the plants, these seedlings, as they grow and provide the plants what they need um, for growth. And so I think that's going to be a pretty fascinating um, bacterial model system to look at with the plants. Mm -hmm. um, another one that's going up, and I guess I keep focusing on biology because uh, that seems to be more of my background these days, but um, <laughs> <laughs> there's another one called BioKiss that looks at just sending up lots of biological species on the space shuttle and just looking at just taking them back down and looking across their, you know, their genetic array and looking for just strange mutations that show up. You know, it's just kind of throwing them out there and it's doing a catch-all on, on some of these genetic mutations. One, one I think that's neat and that's upcoming that you're going to hear a lot more about if you haven't already are these nano racks. Um, yeah. They're, yeah, they're these, yeah. you know, there's a, a, a company called NanoRacks LLC. It's Jeff Manwer's um, putting together. Um, it's, it's, it's these little, it's these smaller cube containers um, that you can put, you know, pay a flat of fee for to NanoRacks and put whatever experiment you want in there and send it up to the space station and, and see what you get. And I believe one just flew on 134, and the researchers are, are probably just now getting their experiments back and looking at those. And so there's another set of those going up. It's called um, Module 8. You know, we don't know exactly what's going on in there. We know that it'll be biological samples uh, to the extent that, that we can be told because it, at, these, at this point it's proprietary. And mm -hmm. it's actually no launch is looking at July 8th. It's still early for us. They usually let us know <laughs> last what's going up inside of those things. So, you know, some pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, I have pages and pages full of, of the experiments that are going up um, and the ones that are being continued on the space station. But every time a space shuttle mission goes up, um, we take advantage of what's called sortie. And again, every, with every shuttle flight, there's usually a vaccine experiment that'll be going up as well. So again, we're not quite sure which microbe will be inside the vaccine experiment. It could be salmonella, it could be MRSA, it could be pseudomonas, it could be any one of those bacteria. So, um, with reference to uh, the loss of the, the shuttle's upmasts, is that going oh. to go ahead and uh, present a problem for you folks, or, or <laughs> have you been thinking along the lines for the future? Can you know? Uh, can the HTV, the ATV, and hopefully later on, the commercial entities kind of sort of pick up the slack for you folks and and really make sure that any type of experiments stay on schedule and making sure that. Uh, you have a good set of experiment racks coming back and forth to the ISS. Right. You know, one thing, um, you know, as a new kid, I, I've been in the office for two years, which you think would be a long time. But as I was coming in, it was this question that was the new question posed. And I was, I was learning about it all. And my, from my perspective is our office and the space station program office feels really comfortable, very good about the use of the HTV, the ATV, the Progress vehicles. Um, we, we purchase Progress vehicles until our SpaceX and orbital vehicles come online. I, I was surprised at, 
you know, one thing I did not, I didn't even know going into this office that we had, you know, for years, this contract in place with SpaceX and Orbital um, to provide these launch services to space station. Uh, SpaceX being able to return samples, Orbital um, not at this point returning samples, but um, our office is very confident in SpaceX and Orbital. I feel confident in SpaceX and Orbital. Um, we're feeling good about working with our partners to get what we need. We've manifested out what we can so far. Looks like we are getting the resources that we need for up mass and down mass. Um, and, and, you know, our down mass is what's going to be the limited component because out of all of those vehicles, only SpaceX will be able to return the down mass. But we've accounted for that, accommodated for that, and, and have planned appropriately for that. And again, it goes back to being a good resource, uh, a good research resource user, I guess you could say, as a um, as a investigator when you're designing your experiment, you do want to aim for uh, on orbit analysis as much as possible. Another part of that is the national lab effort is funding um, new design of hardware to aim that aim that being able to evaluate samples on orbit. That's one thing um, biologically from a lab, uh, you know, from the life sciences aspect and the human physiological aspect, there's not a lot of on-orbit sample analysis that can happen right now. There's some. Okay. It's limited. And that is going to be uh, improved. There's there's much more of the physical science on-orbit analysis because you can get a lot of that through video. and, and um, But the capabilities for on-orbit analysis, sample analysis, is improving and looking good. Um, you know, the large, the large research racks, there are no more to be delivered for us, for NASA. It's mm-hmm. really going to be about the smaller parts, the replaceable parts, um, and the smaller um, components for research. It's good to hear, though, that uh, you're, there's a good uh, high confidence level that uh, commercial and uh, the international partners can pick up the slack. So I'm, I'm, that's very reassuring to hear. It's, it's reassuring to me, too. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> is there any experiment, because I know you particularly enjoy biological experiments, but is there any one experiment that's either on board the station or that is set to fly to the station that you're particularly looking forward to? Right now, I am at this point in my life fascinated with the magnetic spectrometer. <laughs> I think most people probably are who, who yes. are keeping an eye on space station. Um, and I, I talked to Mark about this a little bit in our, in our interview during 134, and I just get silly over AMS because, and I'm, and I'm not like a, honestly, I don't watch Star Trek. I never have been a sci-fi fanatic, strangely enough. I know, oh my gosh, but, uh, you know, AMS is something like, it's applicable to everyone. If you can find the antimatter, the dark matter, those strangelets, and a new form of matter, um, my goodness, that says a lot about who we are and where we've come from, the Big Bang. It's all controversial. It's, it's, Maybe uh, if you get to the scientific level, might be over a lot of people's heads. A lot of it is over my head, but I know enough to know, wow. I mean, you know, all the samples they've already started to collect. I'm just watching, like, daily. I follow them on Twitter, and I'm like, anything, anything, anything yet, 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 yet. And so um, that payload is just fascinating to me, and and that one I'll be watching um, as as long as I can until all kinds of cool stuff is probably going to come out of that. I'm very optimistic and very excited about that, and... Space Station is the only platform that could support an experiment like that. All right. Now, we have one final question. This will be the last one. If people want to learn a little bit more about you or about the science on board the International Space Station, either one, where can people go to learn about it? Ah, yay. Good question. Time to announce. the uh, Time to advertise. So you can go to the web. If you go to nasa.gov forward slash ISS dash Science. Um, right there is is the the database that's maintained for all of the space station experiments. Not only NASA, but as much of our partner research that they can we can get our hands on as well. And we also keep a blog, which I've written just one entry so far, but but it's it's got several entries from lots of different guest bloggers. And that is called a lab aloft, and that's at go.usa.gov forward slash atl. And um, Twitter, uh, we have a Twitter account to our office, and that's at ISS underscore research. And um, if you want to know more about me, if you do a Google search, you probably find enough. I don't have my own uh, my own brand of website. I do have a Twitter account. I'm Space Mama, S-P-A-C-E-M-A-M-A, but uh, 
My son, you'll get a mix of space tweets and mama type tweets since I have a four year old. So, <laughs> so uh, it, it depends on the day. But um, I think you'll find a lot at our NASA.gov website that's probably going to blow your mind. And it's, it's improving all the time. Sounds like I have a new Twitter account to follow. <laughs> I think we all do. Yeah. Oh, and, for all of, and for the listeners, that will be in the show notes. So please go check those out. Thank you very much for joining us tonight on Talking Space. Hey, it was very, very good meeting you guys and getting familiar with your podcast. Once again, Dr. Tara Rutley, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And also thank you as well for joining us, Gene McCulka. A huge thank you again to uh, Dr. Tara Rutley. That was just an incredible hour. Uh, I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. As much as we did, for sure. <laughs> oh, definitely. And a very special thank you for bringing on our lovely guest, Mark Ratterman. And this kind of highlights the importance of being a team because I really enjoyed the questions and uh, and Tara's answers to, to everything that that you and Gene brought. So uh, it's great, great time, great show. From a little 10-minute clip on episode 319 to this amazing episode, thank you. And we'd like to thank everybody for listening. And uh, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.